0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show.
1: Manufacturing Culture In Hollywood, the Pentagon rewrites scripts about the military to manufacture consent for a globe-spanning empire, to make U.S. soldiers look like good guys, to make U.S. wars look like good wars, to ensure continued recruitments, to ensure a steady supply of young bodies to feed into the engine of a giant mechanical dragon that is fueled by human blood? They pipe our heads full of John Bolton brain worms and Lockheed Martin dreams. Our minds are colonized by shock and awe invasions through a neighborhood in Los Angeles with no soul, no art, no heart, no life, no love, just cackling plastic smiles, overmasking bestial snarls and screenwriters with cocaine habits and nothing to say. An invasive culture that is devoid of culture spreads across the globe like the metastatic tendrils of a malignant tumor, saying, Isn't global capitalism working out great? And, This is all perfectly normal and sane, actually. And, Hey, maybe billionaires are crime-fighting superheroes. And, This is definitely the nation that should be leading the world depicting an America with no homelessness or obesity whose streets are clean and whose people are not hanging on by the skin of their teeth in squalor, poverty, and dilapidation. Politics is downstream from culture, they say, as they manufacture culture in Hollywood, Arlington, and Langley. Conveyor belt culture. Plastic culture. Franchise culture. Vulture culture. They funnel death into our minds, so on election day we will vote for death and we will buy death from our stores and pump death into our atmosphere from fuel pumps made possible by orgies of death in the Middle East. The newsman teaches us how to think and Hollywood teaches us how to feel. They pour death and plastic over our hearts like concrete to make us more like them, to make us dim and unimaginative, to make us sharp-toothed and stitch-eyed, to drown out the song of our planet, the song which grows the trees, The song which replicates the cells, the song which swims the fish, the song which chirps the sparrows, the song which stirs the fetus in the womb, the song which moves the energy up the spine, the song which opens up the eyes. They pour death and plastic over our hearts like concrete to sedate our terrestrial intuition, to silence our song, to divert our sacred sexuality. To stifle the thunderclap aliveness of our being. To keep the holy hominid from opening its eyes. Eyes which do not recognize the authority of the mind mages. Eyes which do not recognize the validity of mind cages. They pour death and plastic over our hearts like concrete. But the movement of tree roots can make cracks appear. And from within those cracks, sprouts emerge
0: and that was manufacturing culture, laying bare the soul-crushing madness of art, media, and politics, a poem from Going Rogue. The collected works of political analyst, poet, journalist, songwriter, and self-described digital street philosopher Caitlin Jones, who is the author as well of her collected Poems for Rebels. And Johnstone's many works, including articles, song, art, poetry, and video, are online at caitlynjohnstone.com. And now on Arts Express, to be with Altman doing MASH, I knew he was making a classic. I don't know why, I just do. Veteran actor Tom Skerritt perhaps best known for his portrayal of Duke Forrest in Robert Altman's MASH, the 1970 Korean conflict classic, utilizing satire as the military manning a field hospital, or holding on to their sanity in the face of the horrors of war, is our guest this week on the show. Skerritt, who has appeared in more than 40 films, including Harold and Maude and *Steel Magnolia's and 200 TV episodes delves into the different sorts of challenges in his latest film about aging masculinity and facing inevitable mortality his way into the retreat in the Wilderness Road movie East of the Mountains. Skerritt discusses as well memories of Robert Altman on MASH, portraying Mark Twain in Death Valley Days, and his venture into directing with Divided by Hate about a man who rescues his wife and children from a neo-Nazi cult. First, some scenes from East of the Mountains, then Tom Skerritt.
2: Hi, Dad, it's Renee. I'm just not feeling that great about this trip that you want to take all alone. Are you from around here? Oh,
3: I used to be. Are you sure you're going to be all right out there? I'm going to be fine.
2: I'm just concerned about your health.
3: you do these one-handed? I did. You a doctor or something? I was. got a year, if I don't take treatment. You don't know what's going to happen. But I do bed sores and bone fractures hydration, the sensation of being strangled at the end and a final drip of morphine. That's what's gonna happen. I know exactly what's gonna happen. If I let it stop.
0: Was it about this brooding and complicated character, Ben, that inspired you to want to portray him in this film?
3: I had met with David Goodison some time ago. I loved his writing, his novel, especially East of the Mountains. And uh, so I said, well, I'd be glad to do it, you know. So that's how it all started, six or or seven years ago. Mm.
0: Is there anything you brought from your own life experience to play Ben and get inside his head?
3: Everything we experience is who we come to be. And uh, basically is what I represent. This is a guy who was a doctor for many years and now he's no longer there. So he still has that discipline to do whatever he cannot do anymore. And a variety of things are suddenly all coming in on him. His wife has passed. His daughter's got I- issues. And the guy's been told he's going to die and he's over 80. So uh, how do you deal with that? You tell me. Um, you just... You just gotta walk away off into the fields and, you know, just feel the sage and the breeze blowing and all the, you know, whatever is life over there. And uh, that's basically all you, you, you just, you know, you're talking about something that's creative and it's wordless. You can't talk about the creative process. It is, it just happens. But that's where it comes from, all of our life.
0: And what do you see as influencing your portrayal, if anything, being directed by a woman and someone from a much younger generation?
3: Well, it's quite different because this is what we had wanted. David and I agreed on prior to all of this happening was that we wanted to have a woman in the position of director and one producer and in state here in Washington. Uh, part of this is the development of the visual entertainment business here. Um, it, it, it's it's lovely to work with somebody in a different generation, but I've been, we work differently. Uh, I think SJ came from directing in theater. And uh, so she had a different approach to do it. Mine is you're hired to do the job You just get out there in front of the camera and you do the job and you just know from all of your life experiences including being an actor, that impossibly and instinctively you're going to be able to fit, fit the suit without uh, discussing it.
0: Now, one critic described your character as an expression of Hemingway-like masculinity, presumably referring to males less likely to express feelings and suppressed emotions openly. What are your thoughts about that?
3: I think it just goes through this guy's been a heart surgeon for many years and this is something I know from a couple of heart surgeons that we know and other doctors that we know is emotional containment the profession requires that you have emotional containment so you're in control of a a, a traumatic situation so it it follows that uh, here's a guy who's had this habit of retaining emotionally, retaining himself emotionally over a long period of time and what'd he do with it now? Because uh, he still had that emotional thing. He's just lost wife, got family issues with daughter, and he's told he has cancer. I, all I know is that you don't do anything. You just, how do you process this? You go off into the fields, you go on the other side of the mountain, east of the mountains, and you run in the sage, and you smell it, and you kick up the sand, and Just feel alive again for as long as you're there. And that's when you begin to recognize, okay, I got a day or two ahead of me and I have a daughter that I want to reconcile with. And that's ultimately how you conceptualize it.
4: Beyond that,
3: I don't know how to describe it. I uh, am delighted that people are reacting the way they are, of course. You never assume anything. But I know that somehow or another I've been attached to uh, in the past uh, by, in comparison uh, to several classic films with several classic directors so I happen to come into this really knowing what's going on to begin with and what we can do with it so for me it's about doing the film not necessarily as an actor but helping it happen mm.
4: because of my saying
3: yes I would like to do this film so it's a lot of things a lot of things are in there
0: Now, you've described as your mentor the late Robert Altman. How would you say he most influenced you creatively? And what are your memories of Altman on MASH?
3: Yes, I mentored with Robert Altman. He was a TV director I knew and was friendly with, and he was doing a few TV shows. And and I mentored to watch how he works because my, my consideration was becoming a director, which I am and have done but that's really what I wanted to do so I'm learning from this guy who was some TV director who called one day and said hey I got a film to direct I'd like you to be in it and that was Almond. so it was a rapport that we had and I was able to, to watch him pursue things look at dailies and come up with conceptualizations that I didn't know but what every director does at that time so to be with him doing M.A.S.H., I knew what he was going to be doing. I knew he was making a classic movie. I don't know why. I just do. And um, I've seen that with with uh, Alien. I've seen that with Top Gun. I've seen that with River Runs Through It, Steel Magnolia, some other films that you just know this is going to be better than usual. And I don't know how to go beyond that.
0: And you've also ventured into directing with Divided by Hate in which a man rescues his wife and children from a neo-Nazi cult. Why was that important to you to direct that film?
3: It's just something I'm drawn to doing. I, could, I had to act in that as well. And, uh, it, it is fulfillment fulfillment in, in my own soul to do a lot more than I'm, I've am i had an opportunity to do in, in the film business. And, uh, And that's okay too. So the importance is that you just keep on moving.
0: And you once said, I just do films that I would pay five bucks to see. What can you say about that?
3: Well, you know, there's no reality in that, but I mean, the (laughs) ideal is you really want to be in something that you would pay to see, not just because you're in it. I don't, I never really was much for celebrities. So, um, it was a matter of just trying to feed family, which was priority one. And how do you do that and dance around to get the best, some of the best films ever made? Um, good fortune. Good fortune.
0: And in your very long and distinguished career, when Tom Skerritt looks in the mirror, what does he see?
3: I'm all a man getting older. But the child is still there. Men never lose. Uh, yeah. I think women do, but men never lose the childhood.
0: Hey. <laughs> and among the real-life characters you've played, what was it about portraying Mark Twain in Death Valley Days that drew you in?
3: <laughs> wow, did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Twain, that's Sam Clement. Yeah, he went out to look for gold before he ever became Mark Twain um I don't remember all I know is that we I did several of those Death Valley Days thing, yeah. right at the beginning of his career so they were all going out to near uh, I don't know a lot of the stuff is what goes on around it not so much what the films are and that was a really a lot of fun doing that because we were out in the you know near Grand Canyon and you know, all of that. And it's just was mm. lovely territory to be in. That's what I take away. It's a lot of having worked in Italy over a period of four years. Where you are, the people you're with, the things you see, that's that's really what comes into the whole thing. Mm.
0: And are you working on anything next?
3: Oh, I'm writing all the time. Uh, I'm all the time. Uh, <laughs> so.
0: Yeah.
3: Where I'm working yeah. on too many things, actually. Nothing, really. Yeah, I had to write about the imagination when she quit his country's lost, so I have some thoughts about that, but we won't get into that.
0: <laughs> okay, and thank you so much, Tom Skerritt, for calling into our show.
3: My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Bye.
0: And now on Arts Express...
4: see a handful of radio telescopes poking above the trees. The largest, a 485-foot tall tangle of white beams holding a giant dish the size of two football fields. It looked like a wash basin for Godzilla. The telescope sat at the bottom of a four-mile-long valley surrounded by mountains up to 4,800 feet tall, which created a natural barrier against the outside world's noise. Operating any electrical equipment within 10 miles of here was illegal if it caused interference to the telescopes. Surrounding that 10-mile radius, a 13,000 square mile national radio quiet zone, an area larger than the combined landmass of Connecticut and Massachusetts, further limited cell service and all kinds of wireless communication systems. Restrictions were based on a simple premise. To listen, we have to hear. To unlock the mysteries of the universe, we have to be quiet.
5: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Green Bank, West Virginia is a remote community with a claim to being the quietest town in America. Cell phone, Wi-Fi, and other electronic noise are tightly monitored. But when journalist Stephen Kersey took a deep dive into the apparently sleepy town, he found a Twin Peaks-style stew of surveillance, Nazis, forbidding caves, murder, and suicide. I'm happy to have with us today the author of the new book, The Quiet Zone by Stephen Kersey. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having
6: me on. It's great to talk with you.
5: It sure sounds like you know how to have fun. Uh, (laughs) Where are you calling
6: in from? I'm actually in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Oh,
5: and you haven't owned a cell phone in a decade. Why was that?
6: Yeah, I I threw away my first and last cell phone in 2009. Back then I was living in Cambodia and I was going to be traveling uh, across Asia. So I knew that device wouldn't be working as I traveled internationally. And I also just figured "Ah, I'll take a break from it and I'll get something new when I get back to the United States. But then when I came back to the US, I just kind of started bucking against the pressure from everybody around me to get the fanciest new iPhone or or (laughs) smartphone and be connected all the time. Not for my sake, really for their sake. Uh, And it evolved into this like, kind of experiment to see what's it like in the modern age to go cell phone-less. And I believe that my life is no worse and is in many ways perhaps better for not having a smartphone. And ah. that, that decision is really what led me to Greenbank, this town where ostensibly smartphones are illegal and cell phone service is outlawed and Wi-Fi is against the rules. I thought I could go into this place and find you know, a, a tech-free utopia where people would share my approach to life, maybe.
5: What percentage of Americans own a smartphone?
6: of Americans own cell phones. I think it's about 80% of those 97% have smartphones.
5: Wow. What brought you to Green Bank,
6: West Virginia? So it was in 2017 when I did a simple search online, perhaps ironically, for places in the United States without cell service. And that internet search turned up Green Bank, West Virginia, billed as the quietest town in America because it's home to America's very first National Radio Astronomy Observatory, which was established there back in the 50s. And just like you need to do you know, optical astronomy in a very dark place where there's not a lot of light pollution, you have to do radio astronomy in a very radio quiet place where there's not a lot of radio pollution. And Green Bank back in the 50s was determined to be the best, quietest, suitable place in the eastern United States to have this radio astronomy observatory. It's It's very naturally quiet. There's not uh-huh. many people in this area. There's only about 250 people in, in the town of Greenbank and the surrounding county, which is the size of Rhode Island, there's only about 8,000 people in that whole county. Two thirds of it is state or national forest. So it's just naturally very quiet. Yeah, you, know, you go in there, it's a little bit like stepping back in time. It's, things are a bit more quaint, things are a bit more quiet, at least on the surface.
5: Stephen, why are they looking for those radio waves?
6: What, what's special so, about those so, radio waves? So everything gives off radio waves. You give off, you know, radio waves. We all give off, essentially, energy is coming off of us. And one form of that energy is in the spectrum of radio waves. And that radio wave is also, you know, a fingerprint to the universe. It's a fingerprint that clues us in on what things, you know, look like out there in the universe, what, what's happening out there and it's a fact that the world's very first search for extraterrestrial intelligence was done there in Greenbank which introduces this wonderful irony right that the quietest town in America will perhaps be the first to know if et is out there
5: <laughs> emfs are everywhere and even created by some appliances we might not think about an air conditioner what about
6: just television and radio is that an issue also Green Bank is protected by a couple of laws that establish it as being a quiet zone. The state legislature passed the West Virginia Radio Astronomy Zoning Act, which establishes that within a 10-mile sphere of any observatory, it's going to be illegal, essentially, to emit any interference toward the telescopes. And then there's a, another law protecting a 13,000-square-mile area around Green Bank, This is called the National Radio Quiet Zone, and it was created by U.S. Congress in 1958. And it deems that any kind of fixed installation, you know, that emits radio noise has to be approved first by the Quiet Zone Administrator at the Green Bank Observatory. So when you say, you know, are radios interfering with the telescopes? Is that a problem? Or is satellite TV a problem? It depends. It depends on where you are in the quiet zone and how close you are to the telescopes. Uh, But it's a fact that at the observatory's property itself, they don't want any radio noise. And that goes down to the minutiae of, you know, an employee recently got a Tesla vehicle and the observatory asked that employee to disable the, the driverless capabilities on that car.
5: Some people claim that they're actually allergic to EMF. They're allergic to Wi-Fi. They're allergic to radio waves. And some people with EMF sensitivity may go to extreme lengths in order to avoid it, don't they?
6: That's an understatement. Um, Yeah. Maybe some of your listeners have seen the show Better Call Saul. And there's a character Mm -hmm. in that named Chuck McGill. And he has this electromagnetic hypersensitivity. And he believes that he can physically detect to the point of, you know, feeling intense pain and sickness and being, you know, put on his bed on, you know, in a sick bed from these EMFs. There are thousands of people like Chuck McGill around the world and hundreds of them have come to Green Bank, which they see as like their last refuge in a noisy world, the last place where they can get away from, from, from that pain, from those signals. And they believe it comes from cell towers and from Wi-Fi and from certain kinds of refrigerators and microwaves and smartphones, certainly, and Fitbits. And yeah, many of them have come to Green Bank, and they're fighting hard for this place to remain quiet.
5: Well, if you have rules, they're meaningless unless someone is enforcing them. Who's enforcing the anti-EMF rules in Green Bank? It's a wonderful question, because
6: that was a big question I had going into the place. You know, Historically, there was this, quote-unquote, quiet zone cop, and he would actually drive around town in this electromagnetic interference tracking truck (laughs) and it's got all these antennas sticking out the roof so somebody has you know some renegade signal be it from a arcing electric fence that's supposed to be keeping your cows or a malfunctioning radio or from an electric blanket he's going to be able to pick it up and he would actually go around in that truck and he would ask you hey you've got a problem with your radio can i fix it and that'll fix the problem for both you and for us but today, it's a different thing when the community wants to join the modern world and have things like a smartphone or Wi-Fi or a microwave. And so now it's, it's not convenient for the observatory to see those things come in, even though the people want them. And it's become the fact that today there are more Wi-Fi signals in the Green Bank area than there are homes. It's become so polluted <laughs> with Wi-Fi.
5: Well, so some of this identification as America's quietest town is a little bit of hype. There's a lot that's not what it seems in Green Bank. There's an aura of twin peaks about the tale you tell. There's an outward vision of bucolic serenity. But underneath, there's a dystopian set of relations and actions going on. And you eventually discovered that the radio telescope at Green Bank was acting as cover of a sort for another kind of agency in a nearby town called Sugar Grove. What was that about?
6: So it turns out that the Quiet Zone Administrator, she's not just looking out for Green Bank's telescopes. She is also looking out on behalf of a nearby military station in Sugar Grove, West Virginia, where to this day, the National Security Agency, it operates its own collection about a half dozen radio antennas that are swooping in all of the communications, essentially, in the eastern United States. It's been called our country's largest eavesdropping bug. And it can only do that, it can only monitor the radio noise outside of the quiet zone by being inside the quiet zone. It's really the NSA that is the power behind the quiet zone and that is keeping the quiet zone what it is today.
5: It sounds like an improbable fiction, but... Uh, it, it really is. We're, we're waiting for the television series, Stephen. We really are. And underneath that sugar growth compound, there ran a, a whole series of underground caves. Uh, did they have a government use? I mean, I, this is like a, a 12-year-old writing the Hardy Boys story.
6: That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, which made it wonderful for me. Like I felt like I was you know yeah. in the middle of a Hardy Boys story uh, uncovering all this stuff. So the entire landscape there is riddled with caves. They have hundreds of miles of caves. And the Sugar Grove facility, it sits on top of an underground facility that goes at least two floors down and is at least the size of a football field. That's how large their underground facility is. And because it's a known fact that there's all these underground caves, there's a lot of intrigue and conspiracy and mystery over, you know, could that underground facility perhaps connect to these caves and lead into something deeper in the mountains? And another reason why that conspiracy and that intrigue is there is because the U.S. government did, in fact, secretly build a massive underground bunker in the quiet zone down in White Sulphur Springs in West Virginia, which is just at the very southern edge of the National Radio Quiet Zone. Back in the 50s, U.S. Congress, at the behest of President Eisenhower, said, You know, we need to build a massive underground facility that could potentially hold 1,200 legislators and their aid in the case of an attack on Washington, D.C. And for about 40 years, it remained totally hidden. It's underneath the the Greenbrier results there in White Sulphur Springs. And uh, it was only uncovered in the 1990s by the Washington Post. And there's a funny aspect to that article. I went back and read it. It quotes locals saying, it wasn't a secret. We all knew it was there. If you, if you saw them building this extra wing to the Greenfire Hotel, anybody could have known that there was like more happening there than just a hotel. They were going way too deep underground. We always knew that there was something secret there.
5: Well, a mini series wouldn't be complete without Nazis. So, <laughs> Stephen, bring on the Nazis.
6: <laughs> yeah, you know, there's this strange magnetic quality to quiet. Everybody wants a piece of quiet and in an increasingly noisy world that quiet has a, a, a magnetizing pull to it with more people coming in search of quiet to get away from it all. The, the radio astronomers wanted to get away from it all. The, the spy agency, they wanted to get away from it all so they can monitor that noise. The electrosensitives, they want to get away from it all in a quiet place. Neo-Nazis, in fact, also wanted to get away from it all. And not just any group of Neo-Nazis. This was the National Alliance, which was founded mm-hmm. and run by William Luther Pierce, William Pierce, most notably, is the author of The Turner Diaries, which is this infamous book of racist futurism that's been called the Bible to the racist right by the FBI itself. This is a book that's been credited with having an influence on dozens of acts of deadly racist violence around the world over the past half century. Most notably, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing perpetrated by Timothy McVeigh, who you know, carried this book around for years. He sold it at gun shows, he gave it away to people. He had a copy of it that was highlighted and underlined in his getaway car from Oklahoma City. And to this day, you know, perpetrators of this deadly racist violence are still crediting that book as an inspiration. William Pierce, the author of the book, The Turner Diaries, he went to the Quiet Zone and he established his organization, the National Alliance, which was called the most well-organized, most influential neo-Nazi formation in America for, for about two decades, through the, through the late 80s into the 2000s. And so he came to the quiet zone to get away from it all, just like the astronomers did. He wanted to get away from law enforcement, from minorities, from civil rights groups. He wanted to go to a quiet place where he could be left alone, where he could write his racist screeds, publish his, his books and his magazines and his hatecore music, and pump it out to the whole world.
5: How did you run into these Nazis? (laughs) Did you go looking for them?
6: Did they come looking for you? But it didn't take long in speaking with people and having conversations with people before they would say, oh, you know, it's not just the astronomers who have, you know, wanted to get away from it all and have a piece of the quiet here. We also got neo-Nazis. And so, you know, when I started hearing that, I was like, huh? Yeah, there's a neo-Nazi group here? Wait, it's William Luther Pierce who was here for so long? Um, And then they started saying, well, you know, not much is happening up there at the compound anymore. And so, you know, as any journalist would do, I said, well, I want to go see what's actually happening there. What's going on at the National Alliance compound? And so one day I just uninvited, drove my car up this half mile long dirt pocket marked driveway to get at the National Alliance compound. And doing it, I was somewhat nervous, even though some people had said there's not much happening there anymore. Uh, other county officials said, you shouldn't go up there. You might get shot. This is the kind of people who are liable to shoot Uh you for for trespassing on their property. Um, But it it was this surreal experience of, you know, driving deep into the forest, really nobody knowing where I was, getting to this locked metal gate, which was the entrance to the compound, and this man, you know, roaring up to the other side of it on a four-wheeler with a rifle strapped to the front. He's covered in tattoos. He's a big burly guy. And after looking at my ID and asking me what I was doing, and I said, I'm just researching the National Radio Quiet Zone. I'm curious as to why a group of neo-Nazis would be here as well. He invited me inside the compound to hop on the back mm -hmm. of his four-wheeler. And I proceeded in getting a seven, eight-hour tour of the whole National Alliance compound. He showed me where William Pierce had lived and died. He showed me the warehouses where they store all their books. He took me to this top of the compound, this, this mountaintop area where William Luther Pierce's ashes were scattered. And then over the next couple of years, I kept going back because this man who I was speaking with, he turned out to be a fairly well figure in the far right. And he had big plans for reviving the organization, for bringing in people from around the the country to live back on on this compound. When I first went there, there's only him and his wife and one other person living there. But back in its heyday in the late 90s, there had been two dozen full-time staffers it had been a $1 million hate media empire, and he wanted to bring it back to that. So it was more than just a fascination. It was like a cause for alarm. Like, what is this guy capable of? And what is potentially going to happen here on the back of other deadly far-right violence that we've been seeing in America recently, yeah. from Charlottesville to Dylan Roof to other incidences such as that? Um,
5: and your, your wife, Jenna, is Korean. She can't have been too happy about
6: all this. I mean, that just introduced a whole another layer of of, of eeriness to it. And, and, you know, you know, scariness of wondering like how, how close should I get without introducing potential harm to my own family here? My, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, Jenna, now she's my wife and we have two kids together. She's Korean and we're an interracial couple. And it's a fact that William Pierce, he wrote a sequel to the Turner Diaries called Hunter. And it's about a racist serial killer who goes roving around the country, killing blacks and Jews and people in interracial relationships. This this book is actually modeled after a real racist serial killer named uh-huh. Joseph Paul Franklin, who did exactly that. He killed up to two dozen people. Two of his victims, actually, were in Pocahontas County itself, not far from the Green Bank Observatory. And so for me to be there, yeah, it was it was frightening. It wasn't she wasn't completely thrilled with what I was doing.
5: Well, you, you, I know, Stephen, you are into some extreme sports, mountain climbing and expert ski trails. Was it scarier to climb in 2014 to the summit of Mount Aconcagua, the tallest peak in the Western Hemisphere, or to be having a conversation with a Nazi in a deserted shack in the middle of the woods?
6: Aconcagua was just pain. You know, it's just extreme cold <laughs> being up that high. It was scary. It was actually frightening to be talking with the neo-Nazi deep in the woods of Appalachia and not knowing you know, where this conversation was going, what he wanted to do with me, what his intents were. It was much more frightening to be there.
5: Well, as if that weren't enough, you managed to find yourself investigating a murder-suicide that had occurred in the sleepy town, the sleepy county of Pocahontas. And uh, you found yourself in a pitch black
6: cave with somebody that you didn't really know very well. I was at the neo-Nazi compound uh, on one of my visits and I was speaking with uh, a man named Jay. and as we were getting done speaking outside of uh, the compound, a man kind of tromped out of the woods and I introduced myself to him and he said his name was D. Thompson and he'd lived in the county forever. He was in his 50s. He was, you know a shady character himself. He wasn't a member of the neo-Nazi organization. But he foraged illegally on their land for, you know, uh, plants that were kind of off limits at the time, be it ginseng or whatever that was out of season. He was also a drug dealing ex-convict, ex-convict. He had been in jail a number of times over the years. I start talking with him about the history of the area. And he starts telling me about his version of all these unsolved murders. And he starts telling me he knows who, who perpetrated all these unsolved murders. And he starts suggesting that his own father was was potentially involved in one of the murder suicides there. This is a very strange case. It it involved a a, a hippie back to the lander who had moved there in the 70s and who uh, was friends with another young man in the area. The young man went missing, and then this hippie back to the lander also went missing. Police went to the hippie's house, and they found a suicide note where the hippie had said, I killed that other boy. And I'm also going to kill myself now. And you'll find both of our bodies in the caves in the surrounding hills. Police found the young boy's body in the cave behind this hippie's house. But the hippie wasn't discovered until six months later, hanging from a tree about a half mile away. And it's this, still to this day, this strange, bizarre case where nobody's quite sure what happened. So here I am at the neo Nazi compound and this. You know, drug dealing ex-convict is telling me, yeah, I know what happened to that guy. I know who killed him and the boy. And I think my father, my own father was involved. And I'll take you into the cave where the boy's body was discovered. The next morning, I found myself deep in this cave with the (laughs) neo-Nazi, as well as this guy, D, the son of the alleged killer. At one point, the, the, the cave got too narrow for the neo-Nazi to – he was a bit of a heavyset guy to, like, be able to crawl through anymore. So he kind of bailed off, went back to the entrance. But I kept on crawling on with Dee. And at one point, like, we're deep inside the cave, at least a quarter mile in there, deep in the earth. And Dee tells me to turn off my light. <laughs> so he clicks off his light. And if any of you have ever been into a cave, like, that deep, it is an almost out-of-body experience like this complete void of sound and light. And you almost like you're just floating in space all of a sudden. And my mind just went into this weird place where I imagined, you know, D Thompson, you know, unsheathing the Bowie knife that he had on his, on, on his waist, and potentially murdering me, just like this other man had been murdered decades before I arrived there. You know, as I'm imagining this, Dee clicks his light back on and says, I just wanted to experience, you know, what true quiet was like, what true darkness was like. And I found myself deep in this cave and it was frightening. It was a place I did not want to be.
5: And if murder and Nazis and the NSA were not enough, the worst was you had to face down Patch Adams, (laughs) the clown doctor. Tell us about that.
6: Patch Adams, he's one of those hippies and back-to-the-landers who came to the area back in the 70s and 80s. So Patch Adams, uh, you know, this is the Patch Adams that you all might know from the 1998 blockbuster starting Robin Williams. Robin Williams was Patch Adams. That's what made him famous. In 1980, Patch Adams purchased a 300-acre parcel of land just south of Green Bank in the Quiet Zone, where he has been promising ever since then, to build a free hospital to serve rural Appalachia. And you know, if you Google Patch Adams uh, Hospital, you're probably going to find a lot of articles saying he has a hospital in the quiet zone or in Appalachia, and he's you know, providing a free rural health care. In fact, I visited the Patch Adams quote-unquote hospital, and there's not much happening there. Uh, it's a fact that they have never treated a single person there on the land. It's a fact oh that the Tide Institute has taken in more than $20 million over the past 40 years. A lot of that money coming on the popularity of the movie Patch Adams. You know, Patch Adams himself, he he he, he does speaking arrangements for about $20,000 a pop. He's still in high demand to this day, and he's still going around talking about how he's building a hospital in rural Appalachia when in fact nobody has ever been cared for there. And I had a couple of really hard conversations with Patch Adams. I spoke with him uh, about three times on the phone uh, over over a two-year period. And those were tense conversations with me saying, couldn't you do something? And, you know, it's it's like, couldn't Patch Adams at least have opened a clinic? Absolutely. He Could have done something there, just like this other person who moved into the area did. But he hasn't. It's a wild, outlandish plan that he's still promising to build someday.
5: Wow. So I guess if, if you weren't afraid of being sued, you could say that Patch Adams was a fraud, a total fraud.
6: <laughs> yeah, sure.
2: I'll,
6: I'll let you say it since you're not afraid of I being sued. I'll let me say it.
5: You went back to Green Bank a, a few times. How had things change?
6: Somewhat depressingly, I found that by the 2019, the Quiet Zone COP was detecting like a 50% increase in Wi-Fi signals around the Green Bank area. You know, dozens of new signals have been popping up, polluting that radio environment, like on the depressing side. Uh, On the positive side, (laughs) I found that the neo-Nazi organization was essentially, you know, closing shop. And they since moved their headquarters to Tennessee.
5: Your experiences in the Green Bank area were so disparate, so unusual and so unexpected. Uh, Do you find any connections in all this, some overarching meaning?
6: You know, one is simply that there is no paradise on earth, right? Uh, so many articles portray this place to be an offline utopia where people are happy to follow the law of the land, where they're you know, happy to live a quieter lifestyle where Wi-Fi is not illegal, can't have microwave or smartphones. But in fact, like they do have all those things. Like For outsiders, I think there's often an attraction to the story of there being one place in the world that's you know, living quietly for the rest of us. If there's still one group of people, almost like in the book, Brave New World, where they're living you know, the way we used to live. They're like the original humans. But in fact, that's not the case. And if we want to have any quiet in our own lives, we're going to have to fight for it on our own. If even Green Bank can't remain quiet, what hope does the rest of the world have for staying quiet? And that ties it back into my own search for having a quiet place, my own you know, refusal to get a mm-hmm. smartphone. And you know, what does that mean for me?
5: Any chance you'll get a smartphone anytime soon?
6: <laughs> I, fortunately, I have. A, fortunately, my wife it hasn't been pressuring me to, despite the fact that we now have two kids. But so far, it's it's been fine not having one.
5: As we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to add, Stephen? It's been
6: great talking with you. I, I guess I would say I have, a, I, have a, I have a website. It's stephenkerzy.com. Stephen with a P H. Uh-huh. Kerzy is K U R C Z Y. The book should be available at your local bookstore.
5: Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Stephen. It's a really great, entertaining read, a real page turner. I've been talking with Stephen Kersey, author of The Quiet Zone, published by Day Street, a division of HarperCollins. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie
1: Miller.
0: And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Dinner with the Devil, or so it would seem. Comedian, author, actress, and activist Chelsea Handler phoned into the show to discuss her current pandemic survival comedy show and somehow surviving as a guest as well at that dinner with Jeffrey Epstein. And as a guest of Katie Couric at the House of Epstein, she could only describe as just one of those weird nights with a strange assemblage of guests as well, counting Charlie Rose, Woody Allen, and Prince Andrew. Chelsea also weighs in on cancel culture in the comedy world and what she feels is most misunderstood about her as to what she has to say on stage, quote, You can have great things in life without subscribing to social expectations of you. So yeah, it's important to stand for something. That's it. Hi, Hi, how are you? And welcome to our show.
2: Hi, thank you.
0: Now, anything to say about your visit to that Jeffrey Epstein dinner party you attended that you later described as, quote, just one of those weird nights?
2: Well, Woody Allen and Sue and you were there. This was about seven, I don't know, 15 years ago. I didn't really know who he was at the time. Katie Couric brought me. We had a small dinner. It was Charlie Rose. Prince Andrew, Woody Allen, and Sue Yee. And all I could think about during the whole dinner was, like, I am not going to be someone who sits at dinner with Woody Allen and mm-hmm. doesn't say anything. So at the end of the dinner, I really waited and spent my time. And uh, at the end of the dinner, I just looked at them both and said, how did you two me? Okay.
0: And what is your new national comedy tour all about?
2: Well, it's called Vaccinated and Horny, and it is a great opportunity for me as a comedian to bring audiences together to laugh and uh, roar about the last years of our life. If we don't make fun of it, it's pretty depressing. So I am making fun of all of my behavior and all of everyone's behavior, really. There was a lot of COVID tests in my backyard for potential suitors when I realized this pandemic was going to go on for a long time. There was a lot of mushroom use with my landscaper, who was the only person I saw for about three weeks. There was a lot of um, me getting to know my dogs for the first time as their sole provider since I had never been alone with my own dogs for that long, and they think that my housekeeper is their actual birth mother. So I have a lot of personal experiences to draw from. My sister invaded my house with her three children, and I've spent my entire life, you know, very committed to being alone and single. So that was a big affront to have three children all of a sudden living with me, adult children, because apparently parenting never really ends
0: and why this tour and why now
2: well it's, it's the beginning of the reopening of the whole country so i wanted to be a reason people were coming back together and uh yeah i mean it's you know as a comedian you just want to be talking about what's happening in the now so it's the perfect time for all comedians to want to perform i think mm. Laps is needed
0: now what do you feel is most misunderstood about you
2: um, well, I think the thing that people get to get people think I'm, you know, out so outspoken so uh, Kind of, you know loud about my beliefs people get turned off by that when in, you know, my argument is we should be celebrating women who are confident and secure and self-assured and independent and fierce, not being intimidated by them And so that's been a big thing my whole life, you know men being intimidated by me and, or, or turned off by me because I'm too outspoken or I'm too loud. And it's like, well, that's a quality that men get away with all the time. So I would argue that it's our turn. Women, it's all of our turn to infuse ourselves and each other with a little bit more confidence and a little bit more, um, you know, bravery. Mm.
0: And in what ways do you feel you're treated differently as a female comedian by the audience and also by the comedy world and Who Calls the Shots?,
2: feel i mean i've been doing this for a long time so i'm in you know a a good position but you you know you just it's the same thing as what i said you know people people are you know a woman who wants to get on stage and tell her story and it's not afraid to call people out and not afraid to put people in their place scares people and that's something that i want to demystify i think all women should grow up knowing that voice matters and what they say is powerful, and not to be scared of your own opinions and not to let people, you know, allow you to shrink. Mm -hmm.
0: How do you feel about what's come up more recently in the comedy world, cancel culture?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people just needed to get, you know, needed to be checked. And, uh, you know, we're disrespecting, we were, as comics, disrespecting lots of different people with insensitive stuff. And I think it's a great challenge to have to not you know, to not be able to do that anymore. You're not allowed to make fun of brown and black people anymore. Let's focus on the real let's focus on white men. It's their turn, you know, mm-hmm. let's let's change the conversation. So I'm into I'm into having parameters set. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. We've all had growth and if you can't grow from this and understand that the world is changing and it's different, then you shouldn't be doing stand up in the first place.
0: And what can you say about once turning down a request to pose nude in Playboy?
2: Well, I'd like to be in control of all my nude work. So if I'm ever <laughs> going to do that, I do that on my own Instagram.
0: And when Chelsea Handler looks in the mirror, what does she see?
2: Uh, I'm proud of myself. And I'm proud of the example I'm setting for other women, that you can achieve success and do it by yourself. Not rely on a man. You can you know, have all the great things in life without subscribing to what society expects of you which is motherhood and marriage, you know, we're better than that, smarter than that, we have more to offer than that. So uh, I like to think that, you know, I stuck by my word, and I've achieved a lot, and I'm a pretty happy camper for it. So yeah.
0: Now you've said about being heard politically that, quote, I don't care how annoying or loud I am. It's important to be loud. Please elaborate.
2: Well, it's important to stand up for something. If you see something, you say something. You know, it's important to it's important to uh, to, to 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 stand for something. That's it. I mean, I, I, if, you know, if people aren't going to say something when they see something, then what's the point of society? You know, I, I just feel very passionately about that.
0: And anything else coming up for you?
2: Yeah, we're turning my uh, latest book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, into a uh, TV show that I will be starting in, which is kind of like a curve of your enthusiasm, so I'm pretty excited about that.
0: And any last word about your tour?
2: You know, to bring people together. I think we miss togetherness, and we miss being in the same place and laughing and reminding that that is really kind of the best medicine.
0: And more information about Chelsea Handler's National Comedy Tour